0: This is Bipocalypse. Hey everyone, welcome back to this year's edition of Bipocalypse. My name is Angie Antonio and I'm with Amira. And, and we are your hosts this year for Bipocalypse. If you don't know already, Bipocalypse is one of the number one podcasts <laughs> at Western. <laughs> and we cover a range of topics that affect the cop Bi- 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 community. And today, we are going to be talking about sex. So, I'm sure you guys have heard of sex and everything like that, (laughs) Um, but we have some amazing guests with us today, and we're going to allow them to introduce themselves, so yeah, go ahead.
1: Hey guys, my name is Emmy. I'm a fourth year bio major med side minor So, in addition to kind of my education, which is a bit more the anatomy and physiology behind um, the human body, and, and as an extension, sex- Um, I work as the director of communications and co-run a non-profit that recently just got registered with the government, which is great, um, called Menstruation Redefined. And we kind of tackle menstrual equity and just general sex education and health advocacy education.
2: Hi, I am Dr. Sarah Blanchette. I'm a professor here. I teach in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies department. I teach a course called The Body. Um, I'm, it's a pleasure uh, to be here. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the conversations. Uh, my research generally deals with uh, health humanities, so looking at um, these types of questions in relation to literature across North America. Thank you so
0: much for being here with us, and I'm going to pass it to Elvira to start us off on our topic.
1: Yeah, so a good place to be starting would be about the talk. I mean, we're all grown, so I think we've all had a version of the talk. Not me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, like my like I my background is Indian and, and I'm Muslim as well. So my parents are very progressive, mm. but we did not have the talk. My mom handed me a book and went like here's what you need to know about periods and sex. And if I had questions, I'd go to her, but I didn't have questions. I think I was lucky. My parents both pursued careers in the STEM field. And my mom's a teacher, actually, as well. So her knowing kind of already what was in the school curriculum, I don't think she ever felt the need to have a sit-down talk and talk because she kind of knew at like what age I would be learning what and like through what. And I think in a more casual way, she would just start talking about things that she thought were age-appropriate in, like, casual conversation. So she would say, like, oh, I heard about this in the news. Um, Someone got sexually assaulted, let's say, and it was really unfortunate um do you want to have a conversation about Mm. that so it was a bit more casual and we never just had like one sit down talk Mm. yeah I remember as a kid I would just go up and ask random questions I think in first grade actually um I was like mom dad like why do guys stand up to pee (laughs) and my my parents were like how do you (laughs)
2: know Dr. Bansha, how about you yeah I don't know if this is dating me and it was just like in my generation yeah. or if it was because my parents are Catholic but I did not get a talk at all yeah. I yeah, I didn't grow up with a talk mm-hmm. um, so I don't know yeah, what to, to speak to other than I think you, you kind of brought up the um, you know menstruation was talked about and that's kind of what girls get as the talk yeah. so I think that that's kind of problematic right that that yeah. kind of gets equated yeah. well now you have all the information you yeah. need <laughs> and it's kind of um, yeah this distinction between sexuality and actually understanding our bodies exactly. and how they Yeah, yeah
1: that's a really good point because a lot of women that I knew like in my extended family my family um like like I said my parents are quite progressive so like if I wanted to have a conversation about this stuff they would be willing to but a lot of girls who I know just didn't get one, and mm-hmm. they'd be told about periods, and then when they would get maybe they were expected to be abstinent until marriage. Yeah, yeah. And then on their wedding night, they wouldn't know what sex is, and then they would have sex with their husband, but not understand any of it yeah. and not know what happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that this is like—I don't want to give it a term or anything—but it feels. Like if you're having sex with someone who doesn't know what sex is, even if they're a grown person, mm. there's like a lack of informed consent. I yeah,
0: think. I think our most people's parents um, denied having that talk with their kids because it's a way of like I guess protecting them. Because I think mm-hmm. about my family, like we, I didn't really have a sex talk. It was really just don't have sex, <laughs> like <laughs> <so that was laughs> um, don't let boys touch you. That kind of conversation. But I found that with the years and with time. Like, I'm so much more open with my parents. It's yeah, so shocking because yeah. I would be so scared to bring up these conversations. Or, like, when the sex scene comes up comes out oh, on, yeah, a teen, yeah. on the movie. It's like, oh, my gosh. But now, like, I feel like with time. Um, but, yeah, that idea of, like, being abstinent before having sex. Like, it's like, did the, our parents really expect us not to, like, you know, learn these things or understand these things? It's unfortunate, though, that oftentimes... Um, it's culture or like the things around us that kind of shape that view of sex Mm -hmm. and that kind of moves into our question of how do you guys think that sex is shaped by culture tradition, shame, virginity, all those topics how, um, I mean what do you think about that?
1: I don't know if this is something you know Alvira but in some parts of um, South Asia before colonialism, so before the Victorian era um, it only makes sense that clothing would be loosely draped across your body because it's a hot climate and that's just what you're used to So um, there's, like, a traditional garment called the sari, and women would never wear a shirt with it. So they would be bare-breasted, and they would just wear the piece of cloth. And then when the colonialism happened, and uh, I guess the settlers came, and they they saw that people were bare-breasted, this is kind of uh, against their, like, ideas of Mm -hmm. morals, purity, culture, um, because in the Victorian era, was like, high necklines, and um so that was kind of introduced into our culture and it's interesting now because if you go to like uh desi or south asian culture now it's like oh you should cover this area yeah. like with the shawl or whatever but yeah. historically it hasn't been like that yeah. and that's kind of introduced through like this new yeah. intermingling of cultures so i think it's really interesting to talk about this. Yeah. yeah
0: and dr Gonshad, i want to pose to you how do you feel about the research that's currently being conducted about
2: sexual health amongst um BIPOC communities as you guys have kind of really pointed out already, a lot of um, research on sexual health is very much centered on like the white male body as being like the norm of what sexuality is. And a lot of hypersexualization or fetishization of different bodies is in order it is from that white settler perspective. And it all relates back to you know, dehumanization, um, white supremacy, those types of things. And because of that, there's lots of standards of sexuality that are applied to different communities that that don't apply to them. Those aren't the standards that they would set for themselves. So when one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about in terms of sexual health is kind of expanding or how um, black, indigenous, and people of color have expanded what we think of when we talk about something like reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. So, often, especially in white feminism, we get, you know, right to choose discourse and abortion discourse, and those are important conversations. But a lot of BIPOC um, feminists have addressed how those aren't the only conversations that need to happen around reproductive <laughs> rights. So, for instance, black feminist um, Dr. Zakita Luna, her book, Reproductive Rights as Human Rights, so she's arguing about how it's important to have the right to have children so for low-income people or for people who need the aid of technology like a lesbian gay uh, bisexual trans individuals two-spirit individuals might need that reproductive assistance in order to become uh, parents uh, as well as the right to parent with dignity so um, parents that might be incarcerated in um, Dr. Amrita Pandey's book, Wo- Wombs in Labor, Transnational Commercial Surrogacy in India, she talks about the irony of the fact that uh, there's so much commercial transnational surrogacy in India, so families from North America who are paying for surrogates in India, um, even though she describes it as being a very anti-natalist state. So these women are told, don't have children of your own, but sure, you can you know, get paid to have these white babies. Uh, and then there's also Dr. Karen Stote's book, An Act of Genocide, and she Talks about um, the forced sterilization of Indigenous women in Turtle Island. Um, you know, there's also the history of residential schools, which has taken Indigenous children away from their families. The foster care system, the 60s Scoop, which took Indigenous children away from their families. The problematic birth alerts, which took Indigenous children away from their families. So in just, you know, some of all those different things, just this example of reproductive health and how all these different black, indigenous and people of color have expanded what we need to talk about when we're thinking about reproductive health shows us how sexual health and all these different politics really have been so limited in their framework. And now we're expanding them and talking more about um, how all these things need to really be dismantled through this critical race lens. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Wow, <laughs> a yeah. lot. sorry. That so, <laughs>
0: so I wanted to talk a bit about how social media, um, again, like we talk about culture, and oftentimes even our friends and family can make us have different views of our own bodies and how um, we look at ourselves in terms of sex and you know how that affects us. So if anyone wants to kind of expand on that in the ter- in terms of like how social media has made you feel concerning
1: sexual health? I think social media, I think we sit at a very, very interesting time where, like, when we were growing up, I think, like, I remember we had fat computer. I know they're not called fat computers. (laughs) 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 The checking (laughs) one, you know what I mean? And, like, while I was growing up, like, my parents did not know a lot about the internet, so a lot of, well, like, obviously they kept an eye on what I did, but a lot of it they didn't understand. And, like, Saying that, I think it's really interesting if you look at it at like Tumblr culture from when we were 13.
2: I'm going to mention, like, eating
1: disorders here, so <laughs> a trigger warning there, or a content warning. But, like, there was a lot of, like, pro-anorexia, pro-this type of, like, this is how your body should look like. This is how men will like your body. And if you don't look like this, then you are not worthy of anything. But at the same time, you have to be a virgin. And at the same time, you have to look perfect. But if you wear makeup, you are problematic. And if you're not light-skinned, then you're problematic. Mm -hmm. So I think when growing up at that time, it was hard because I was like, I don't look like anything that you're telling me I'm supposed to look like. But now that we're a bit older and there's more inclusiveness, I think that may be a word, it's like my younger sister she's 12 so i get happy to see that when she watches tv she gets to see more people who look like her Mm -hmm. her body type her height whatever Mm -hmm. so i think growing up it had a really negative effect on the way that i looked at myself
0: yeah being a black woman as well like there's so much in the beauty industry and just everything about um how men perceive women like you said light skin um curly hair you know like the typical body like um you know, I grew up being a dark skin woman and just thinking, "Oh my God, I'm not beautiful at all." Mm-hmm. You know, these guys will not want to be with me. But I've seen with time that now it's not a case of okay, like she's beautiful. It's like, oh, I just want to like have sex with her, or yeah, you know, yeah. like um, she, she, I like know, I'm, I'm so fetishizing nice. this girl. Like she's, yeah. she has this, she has that, like it's more of that kind of view it's not really like you're looking at me like i'm i'm worth anything Mm -hmm. it's like you just want to have sex with me i think what this also says is that our experiences really teach us so much about like all these topics like we Mm -hmm. come to know this not through education not through the school system through our own experiences what our friends tell us and again culture shapes a lot for us dr ganshad i wanted to pose a question at you what do you think can be done to our curricula to change the way we think about
2: sexual health practices and make them less taboo? Uh, just drawing on some of the threads that you guys have already put down, you how what your idea of beauty or what your idea of the ideal body is, it's always coming from this kind of white, heteropatrial yeah. male gaze of like, how do I make myself beautiful for this, yeah. you know, imagined, fabled white guy who's going to love me and all yeah. these kinds of things. And that's kind of the pedestal. So I think, you know, to answer the question, you know, one, introducing sex education earlier, you know, yeah. ideas of consent, gender, different ideas about gender, uh, diverse sexualities, you know, getting that done. But also, just more importantly, decentering white, cisgender, heteronormative perspectives yeah. within, you know, sex education, because that's the root of all of this, you know, fetishization, hypersexualization is that. We all need to make ourselves beautiful for this, like, mm-hmm. white male, like, um, mm-hmm. like strange, like, erythial figure uh, <laughs> who's going to, like, give us all value and meaning. Yeah. Uh, but actually, like, you know, as you're saying, like, you know, you find it within yourself. That's mm-hmm. that's how you actually find uh, those things. But so much of our society is built on these kind of very damaging to to cis and transgender women uh, concepts of what beauty needs to be and how it's often, we were talking about, like, the hymen, you know, based on pain <laughs> I
1: think to add to that I've noticed that a lot of our sexual education curriculum it's kind of based on the- a, like, no pregnancies, no STIs, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's it, and then they'll have one class where the, they'll separate the guys and the girls, the mm-hmm. girls will get the menstruation talk, and the guys might get, like, a wet dreams talk. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the extent of, like, yeah. the extent And maybe like, throw in a condom on a banana. Out of, on a <laughs> <the laughs> banana, of course, and then you're done. You're and then, like, for one, there's no talk on, um, fulfilling relationships, yeah. diversity, uh, there's nothing about, um, any of that, and I think it's very, like, important to dismantle yeah. this heteronormative yeah. kind of view on it first, and then second of all, like, approach it from more of a holistic view mm-hmm. instead of, be- like, these two things. And I always think about this one scene in meeting Girls, like, at the very beginning, um she misses a health class, and she's like, oh, what did I miss that day? And the coach is like, don't have sex, abstinence.
0: <laughs> you know. And
1: I just think of that every single time I have discussions on this topic because, yeah. like, although this will be a parody of what's going on in schools, yeah. it pretty much basically is, yeah. you know. Uh, And this, I'm only talking for cis women because, like, as a cis woman myself, I can't speak to a a non-cis experience, but, like, I find that, especially, like, on dating apps, for example, like, our age, like, if you're on Tinder, as, like, we try to explore ourselves and it's more acceptable for women to have sex, men now find it very easy, like, oh, women are down to have sex now. Great, how can I make this an awful experience for you? (laughs) You That was an entire, like, like, I think that, like, they've taken this opportunity where, like, it is a win for women to be um, comfortable in their sexuality and have sex, should they choose to with whomever they want to. But it's also created this way for men to be able to stop seeing us as people uh-huh. and further objectify us. I don't know if you guys have and I thought this too, but, like, I go there sometimes <laughs> when I'm sad, and I leave sadder. You're just it's like, no way. I can't lie. no yeah. validation tastes so sweet.
0: It's but in that moment. In that
1: moment. <laughs> and then <laughs> I'm like, ouch. Yikes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, rape like, culture, all those things haven't, like, the education on those things haven't. Caught up with the progression of sexual liberation. So I think because of that, there's this huge gap where now it's even easier to manipulate women. Yeah. um, Or any, like, manipulate anyone really who doesn't have a proper understanding of. Yeah, and I think it's even worse for, for women, like non white, non straight white women, because, like, you know, you see a man, or, like, you see a guy, or, well, I'll use myself as an example, and I'll be like, oh, he's kind of cute, okay. And my first immediate thought is, oh, he doesn't like brown.
0: That's yeah. literally me. Every single time I may see a guy, in my head I'm thinking, okay, does he look like he likes black girls? Yeah, or, I need to
1: find out. Let me stalk his Instagram, yeah. let like, see the type of stuff. Because, who does he hang out with? Yeah, look at his followers, yeah. Because <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Especially, um, a lot of men from my own community, brown men, hate. No one hates brown women the way they do. Yeah. They <laughs> will. They will deprave us, insult us, whatever I they find can in their
0: power. I find that so common among like black people as well. Like black men just hate black women. Just hate them. Well, not all of them, but like yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like a why, lot of them. Why I don't know like why a that's a thing. In
1: culture. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because they'll they'll. To the degrading thing. They'll do all of that. But at the end of the day, they will come back. Yeah! Oh yeah, my yeah. You know what? They and then they'll gonna... come back to make some poor girl. Yeah, like, yeah, Literally. And they will come back to a pure virgin who's never looked another like and a way back back to Yeah. And just another way for them to manipulate and keep power over women. Yeah. They will understand. have sex with whoever they want to have sex with.
0: And they'll say, they'll come back to you and say, I want to make you my wife.
1: Yeah. And, and then they don't. Oh, the Donald Hart complex, yeah. Uh, oh, and then sure. yeah, it's just very interesting to see how it plays out in like actual relationships. Um man. essentially when a man sees woman as a whole, they see two types, um, one the Madonna and two the whore. So the Madonna is someone he can um essentially wife marry. Um, and usually people that fit in that category are like people, so the person who hopes to marry, his sisters, his mother, and those are all like good, <laughs> pure women who yeah. like follow his ideals. And then there's the whore, who's the liberated woman, who's, um, more progressive. Um, and usually those women are the women that they will date for fun, for time pass, um, but when it's, or even keep as mistresses, but when it's time to settle down, they can't differentiate. These two things, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the times they see the act of sex as doing it to an object or an objectifying thing. So they can no longer see this woman as a human person with her own feelings, emotions, um, past experiences. And it's kind of like, oh, this is like an objectifying, the person I can objectify, and this is the person I can have, like, be, like, fulfilling parts of, uh, or, like, intimate parts of a relationship of the sex.
2: Mind if I circle back to your question about curriculum? Because I feel like some of the you're talking about, you know, holistic and the emotional and the intimate aspects of relationships and we're like, what can we do to curriculum? Like, we talk about it like it's biology like it's just bodies, like it's, you know, words on a page, but why aren't we talking about intimacy and how do you form intimate connections or how do you, like, create because sex is emotional and that Mm -hmm. just gets written out of curriculum, right? We want to talk about it like it's just biology and so I think one of the great things that you guys are addressing is that one of the reasons that we get these kind of, the dehumanization, the depersonalization, the objectification of bodies is because we're not talking about bodies in sex education yeah. as emotional feeling yeah. things. We're talking about them like these objects and then that perpetuates this terrible, like you're talking about all the effects that, that real people are yeah. feeling because of that.
1: I um, think a lot of teachers, they didn't have these mm-hmm. conversations during their training, growing up and then during their training, but they don't feel comfortable to have these type of discussions with their class and oftentimes. Um, my mom says that her coworkers sometimes they just skip it because they're just uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and there's no guidance. They've never been trained. You know, mm-hmm. they just randomly get placed in a class, and all of a sudden, we need to give like a class of ten year olds this talk that mm-hmm. can fundamentally change their outlook.
0: Dr. Blanchard I wanted to pose this back to you because I know that your one of your research interests is um, feminist bioethics, yeah. and I want to ask you, what is a common theme you find regarding the work of BIPOC women in the healthcare system?
2: Yeah, so unfortunately, <laughs> it's not going to be... <laughs> Sunshine, uh, the, the theme that I wanted to talk about is that, uh, you know, systemically black, indigenous and people of color, uh, is p- particularly women, they just receive inferior health care. And this is because of the racist assumption that they just don't feel pain and yeah. their symptoms are not believed. And so this causes wide, widespread issues. Um, and for and uh, just two texts that I'll, I'll plug for you. Structures of indifference in indigenous life and death in a Canadian city. You should also read Unequal Treatment, Confronting Racial and Ethnic. Disparities in healthcare. Um, and so this is just like a fact. Like we we just know that there's racial bias in healthcare, and that this causes uh, Black Indigenous and people and women of color to just receive inferior care. And importantly, I also wanted to, to raise two other issues that you know this is also a, a trend that's true for girls, not just women. Like you know your, your question was posed about women, but unfortunately this this also carries over to girls. And Black girlhood studies in particular has looked at what they term the adultification yeah. of Black girls. Where Black girls are treated um, comparatively as, as if they're older or more mature than white peers. And this leads to all, leads to all sorts of things like over criminalization, hyper punishment, hypersexualization, and inferior care when they're in the healthcare system. So I wanted to plug a couple black uh, girlhood scholars Dr. Ashley Smith, Dr. Ruth Nicole Brown, Dr. Nu And one more thing I want to talk about. So, black girlhood studies I think it's really important to think about that, you know, when we're thinking about women in healthcare, girls in healthcare are also just not having a horrible time, but um, black maternal health care and just maternal health care in general in the U in the U.S. in particular, but also in Canada is, is tragic. So black mothers are three times more likely to die in childbirth in the U.S. than the national average, uh, and eight times more likely to die in childbirth in New York City. So I don't know what's going on in New York City, That's crazy. but it's, okay. it's, it is, it's a tragedy. It's so horrible. The facts are there. We know this is happening and still nothing's being done about it. Uh, it's even getting worse because of COVID. So there's a wonderful article that I'd like to point uh, listeners to. Black maternal health crisis, COVID-19, and the crisis of care. Uh, these are, yeah, this is life or death for people. Um, they're dying because they're, their symptoms are not being believed. They're going and asking for care and they're not receiving care. I just could not be more disgusted that that is a reality and that we know it's a reality and nothing's being done about it. So not setting positive, but that I think is the most important theme that I would want to highlight for, for listeners, that that is just true.
1: And I feel like a lot of women who do go to ask for care are very just gaslighted. Like, mm-hmm. I have these symptoms, but like, yeah. because um, a lot of women have periods, they just assume, like, higher pain tolerance. My period pain should not be having me in a bed for a and week straight. Period Sorry. pain is
2: also a real pain. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> like, exactly. I don't know why it gets treated like yeah. a special other different exactly. kind of yeah. pain yeah, yeah, yeah. that That's you should right. somehow be able to tolerate. If it was yeah. back pain, then maybe it would help you.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, no, 100% <laughs> like how you're still expected to be able to do everything. And then like, Every day, every every other month, I learn some new period symptom. <laughs> <laughs> and I get upset, and you're like, really? I'm like, oh, my feet are swollen. I won't be fine. I mean, like, I'm going through pain. Oh, it's very upsetting. <laughs> I think to circle back, also, one more thing I just realized my roommates and I talk a lot too about these kind of topics. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how there's an added layer of shame when discussing these topics. And a lot of the times, individuals aren't willing to be coming with their health practitioners mm-hmm. because there's an underlying sense of shame. You know, when they ask the questions, are you sexually active, do you drink, do you do drugs, um, what kind of pain, where are you feeling it? And not only is there kind of the shame surrounding like um, drinking drugs and sex, but there's also the added level of shame of like, oh, you're not supposed to talk about your body parts to like a stranger you shouldn't be talking about. It. It's like, it's mm-hmm. not like modest, it's kind of taboo, yeah. you shouldn't be talking about it to third party stranger. And because of that, they're not being able to get the accurate or correct care that they need because they're not sharing all of the required background or contextual yeah. information. I think that in itself is a huge issue that contributes to and compounds the issue of yeah. receiving it like inappropriate care because yeah. the whole like the whole information isn't there. You know the background. I feel like Dr. Manchin, maybe you would know a little more about this. I don't know. Um, but, like, I feel like, um, like, my own personal experience, when I went to my family doctor and I was like, my period pains are getting really bad, immediately she just put me on birth control. And I feel like a lot of women, when they say anything, oh, I have acne, I have anything, they immediately, immediately get put on birth control. And I'm no doctor, of course, but I feel like giving hormonal treatment, drugs, yes, treatments, is a very interesting first step to literally any pu- like puberty related problem i don't know if you could speak more to it or if you know about it
2: yeah I, I think that you're absolutely right and it's not just uh i guess i think that the evidence is there that just in general like that's how like we solve these problems and uh there are so many uh Unfortunate uh, things that are being undiagnosed because of that. So the symptoms are being masked by the birth control. They're not being solved. So endometriosis is actually a huge problem that affects so many women who almost never get treated for it. The pain just kind of gets worse and worse. Uh, and then maybe one day down the line, they're lucky enough to find a doctor who's willing to give them a hysterectomy. It's actually very, very difficult for women yeah. to get hysterectomies. They have to like prove that maybe they've already had children or that their partner doesn't want them to have children. So yeah, talking about control over own body, is like it's yeah so that's a huge yeah an issue but I think that um yeah that you're absolutely tapping into uh one of the huge problems that that's uh, our first go-to is just yeah here's this very invasive hormonal therapy and we're not actually thinking about the root of why we're in pain and that's because these issues are generally just not researched Mm -hmm. so endometriosis and lots of other conditions like uh, PCOS um uh that can um also cause uh there's the studies aren't being done uh and so because of that we don't have treatments honestly i I just want to continue because i'm just learning so much as
0: well just hearing everything but we are running out of time so i will have to wrap up today's discussion i want to thank emmy and dr blanchette for being here with us um i've learned so much um and yeah i hope to see everyone on our next episode of bipocalypse thank you
1: yeah thank you so much for having us
2: thank you for having me i learned so much you guys are amazing
1: this podcast is produced by ethnocultural support services at western university with music from artlist.io see you next time